Kent, good morning, everyone. Kids, you are dismissed for Gospel Project. Thank you to those of you who are helping to lead them. We want to take a, a moment before we jump into uh, the sermon to hear another testimony. So, Moses, would you come? Uh, this is Moses. How about that? <laughs> um, Moses is uh, a new member here, and the same weekend that the youth went away, college students also were out of town. So Moses is going to tell us a little about that. Why don't you go ahead, brother? Thank you so much for the privilege to be here. Like you said, my name is Moses Unyabo. Don't try to say the last name because I know it's hard. Um, what was it? Unyabo. I got that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was born and brought up in Nigeria, and um, I go to ASU. And I got to know about Church on Mill through a friend of mine. His name is George, and he's here this morning. And um, he invited me to one of the Bible studies that uh, we were having at the Vista de Soul Lounge. And when I got there, it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I said, let me come and check out the church and see if it is also something I'll be interested in. And when I came here, you guys accepted me, and I felt welcome to be here. So I decided to become a member of the church. Praise God. Yeah. <clears throat> so thank you for accepting me. Um, this uh, past weekend, actually two weeks weekends ago, we had the privilege to attend the winter conference in LA. And to be honest with you, it was just exactly what I needed because I had begun to spend too much time on my studies, focusing on myself, trying to get good grace in class and not spending a lot of time studying the Bible and trying to get closer to Jesus. Mm -hmm. But in this conference, the speakers were able to help me connect back to God and refocus my life on Jesus. They taught us that it has to like, um, following Jesus involves lots of sacrifices and it's not going to always be like a very smooth ride. Mm -hmm. It comes with like, um, sacrifices like I said and you have to give up some things and for me it meant giving up my education like the time I spent studying and just make out time for the things of the Spirit of God and to follow him accordingly and I could just feel the presence of God in me and in the people around me during the conference people were not ashamed to leave their hands in worship and they were not ashamed even to go out and tell random people about God and the thing that he's doing in their lives. To the, fact, to the extent that we were able to even go to like, um, the, the beach out there in LA and meet random people and just tell them about Jesus, not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus, but with boldness. Even for those of us, it was the first time for us to do that. We were still able to do it through the power of God that's working in us. Throughout the whole conference, I felt connected to God and loved on my church and my community. Everybody was welcoming. And there was no shame to discuss even the deep things of life. People were so passionate that they could not hide even the sins that was deep into their hearts. Brothers confessing to brothers and sisters confessing to sisters as Jesus worked his miracle in our hearts. We were so full of worship and praise for our God who is both worthy and deserving of our praise. We would have loved to stay longer in the conference, but we also know that God is here. And since we got back here, we decided to form a community among ourselves to encourage each other to pursue hard after God and to live our lives for him. And so I want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity and the privilege to be there. I know those of you who didn't attend, you were here praying for us. And it was because of your prayers that we were able to experience God. And I say thank you and may God bless all of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Thanks. Thanks for being a church that wants to invest in people of all ages and help them grow up in the Lord. Nobody's going to want to listen to me today after listening to you, right? I mean, let's be honest. So, 
Of course it was a deacon. I would say that. Um, Would you read our scripture passage for today? All right, we're going to be in Titus 2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me and with Moses. We'll be in Titus 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chairs in front of you. And uh, Moses will just read the whole section today that we'll be covering. We'll start in verse 11. So Titus 2, 11. Why don't you read for us? All right. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, And I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Amen. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you sharing. Nobody claps when I read Moses. (laughs) So we've been um, on a journey together this year as uh, a church. We've called it basics. Essentially, one way of thinking about this is we're just having spring training for for church, going back to the very basics. So whether you've been a Christian for many, many decades or you're brand new to even considering the claims of Christ, we hope this will serve you well. Thus far, just quickly to walk you through where we've been in case you're new, uh, several weeks ago we said that God has a message, and that message is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, that the very heart of Christianity is the historical fact that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again. And the church exists in order to share that message. So that takes us into the second week. We talked about God's people, that the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a new humanity, a new humanity that's marked by increasingly different kinds of thinking different kinds of attitudes, different kinds of behavior, because God has rescued us. Last week, we talked about God's intent, mainly, that God's intent is to exhibit His glory through His people, and that as we aim to be as diverse as heaven will be, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation have come to know Christ and then live together with Him, that that maximizes the glory of God. Amen? Today, we want to begin exploring, and we'll continue this for the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, 
how those ideas actually flesh out in practice. What does it look like to be a church family where the message and the people and God's intent are what's primary, not where a building or how many people are in the room are primary? What does it look like for people to be increasingly formed by Christ together? How does that flesh itself out in practice? And today we'll talk about family structure, meaning church family. And that will be on the screen behind me. Let, it, let me just read a summary. It says, God's design is for His churches to be made up of committed servants or members who under God's Word are led by humble elders and supported by faithful deacons. God's design is that that structure would be in place in every church, and of course it will look different in different cultures, in different places, but that that structure would be in place so that everything we've talked about thus far can happen. Now, I know you're just jumping up inside wanting to talk about family structure, right? Yes? Yeah, I can tell. Uh, We have talked about this a lot as a church family, especially over the last couple of years. And so what I want to try to do today is, is attack the issue from a different angle. So instead of directly talking about elders or pastors and deacons and membership, I want to try to get behind that and illustrate why this is so immensely important and practical. So the majority of this time, it will feel like this has nothing to do with that. But hopefully in the end, we can tie it all together uh, really well. I wonder, uh, as Moses was reading, besides thinking about how cool his accent is, what do you think about the content of what he read? Specifically, what did you think about the list of commands? There was a bunch of them. Moses essentially read a list of things that God says, do this or don't do this. I made a list a few days ago trying to synthesize them, and let me just read it to you. Uh, Moses said, how how cool is that? To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That we're to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. That we're to say no to worldly passions and yes to self-control. That's we're to say no to selfishness and yes to honesty and justice. That we're to be devoted or zealous, ready for every good work. Not just one or two when we happen to feel like it. For every single good thing God places before us. That we're to be submissive to secular authorities. That one's a little close to home at this moment, isn't it? That we're to be submissive to the spiritual authorities in our life. To be obedient to God and benevolent towards people. That's what Titus 2 and 3 say. That's a lot of stuff. How does that land on you? How does that hit you? At first glance, I imagine for several of us, if not the majority, that a list of behavioral demands can feel rather overwhelming. And it can feel heavy. It can feel defeating. I mean, who actually lives like that? Who really lives a life defined by those kinds of traits? Inside, a few of us are thinking, I must be the only schmuck in the room. Because everybody else was nodding their heads as Moses was reading and acting like they've got all that together. 
when it was hard enough for me to just get my clothes on and show up today. In Titus 2, not even counting the first 10 verses, which is a whole nether list, but verses 11 through 3, 8, in those verses alone, we're given 15 commands. 15 things to do or not do. My favorite is the last one, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Can you imagine how different your driving would be if you actually did that? Just that one thing. It's incredibly easy for our lives, even as Christians, to not look and sound anything like those 15 things. I'm certainly tempted to be zealous, not for good works, but for a good day of self-absorption. The commands of God, the commands of God are tough. And understand, these are not like stop signs. These aren't suggestions. You don't look at them and see if anybody's around and then just roll right on through. These are the standards by which God will hold us accountable. And so even if we obey the, the externals, the, the stuff everybody can see, we're still stuck with the internals, with the motives and desires and intentions of the heart. No matter how we look at it, these 15 things are big. But there's way more here than just a list of demands. There is much more here than a set of behaviors. There's the gospel. So what I'd love to do in the next few minutes that we have remaining together is just try to unfold it for us that we might be encouraged in the truth of the gospel. Um, All of us were born into uh, a culture, and that culture had a story. Now, in a church like Church on Mill where there's people from all over the world, then we have lots of different cultures sitting in the room. This used to be called a worldview, but today it's far more common that people refer to this as a meta-narrative, meaning you're born into a story. And that story, in many ways, will shape who you become. It shapes what we value. It shapes how we interpret life. It shapes what we hope for shapes how we see ourselves, all of this makes up our our story or our worldview. And as I said, different cultures have different stories with slightly different angles on what life is about. But just for clarity's sake and simplicity, let me take one example, which would be the culture that many of us grew up in, the, the dominant American culture. The the main story of the typical, especially white American who grew up in the West sounds something like this. There is no absolute truth. You can be and do and become anything you want to be and do and become if you just try hard enough. All individuals determine what's right for themselves. And sure, we have problems, but... Our problems come from from big government or small government, from a lack of education or from the lack of the right kind of education. 
and from what other people do to us. But problems aren't internal, problems are external. I'm not the problem, I'm the solution. And I'm entitled to what is most important in life. That's me and money and pleasure. That is the dominant story of Western American white culture. Now, the people the letter of Titus was written to also had a story. They were part of a worldview. They had a narrative. And understanding a bit of their story can help us better understand our own, can help us better understand what this passage is designed to tell us. Now, this won't be on the screens, but if you look back to chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see it say these words. It says to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Titus was written by the Apostle Paul to a, a pastor or an early leader in the Greek island of Crete. And Crete was uh, an island still there, of course. Uh, Jill and I visited it a few years ago. Titus was sent to Crete in order to put structure into the churches that Paul had started. And in Crete, there was a particular dominant story that comes to bear in this passage. So God had Paul write Titus for Titus, but then for all the churches in Crete, and of course, by implication, for all the churches who for all time would open this letter and read it. Now, some of, the Paul, some of the words that Paul used in this text are very common to us, especially in Christian culture. So if you've been a believer for any length of time, and if you've opened your Bible and read it, then some of these words are familiar to you. It would have been things you've come across many, many, many times, like salvation and hope, redeem, justified, eternal life. These are all common words. But did you notice any in what Moses read that are less common? Did, did any words kind of leap off the page as being unusual? Well, I hope so. There's a particular way that Paul talks about the gospel in this passage that's unlike any other place that he talks about the gospel. And let me point it out to you. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. And then down in verse 13, he says, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then again in chapter 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared. What's up with that? What, what is he even talking about? This is a way in which... God is describing for us what the gospel is. Now, if you go home today and read all of Paul's letters, you'll find that on nearly every page, he uses the word gospel. And if not on every page, <coughs> excuse me, if not on every page, the word gospel is used, certainly on every page, he's talking about the gospel. It's everywhere on the pages of the Bible. But nowhere else 
is it explicitly referred to in this way. Why? Why did Paul say it that way? Well, it's because Paul was telling the Cretans, isn't that a fun word? Tell your neighbor they look like a Cretan. Thank you. You look like a Cretan. Whoa. Mints and drink. This is great. No one did it. I was serious. Tell your neighbor you look like a Cretan. Thank you for the few of you who did it. What's a Cretan? Somebody from Crete. Okay? So, Paul was taking the one true gospel and expressing it in language that would speak to the people of Crete. And what he's doing is he's subversively upending the whole story that they had been born into. This is so beautiful and amazing. I wonder if you'll amuse me for just a few moments to see if I can describe that to you. He's, he's saying, in essence, Christians, that the gospel tells the truth. It tells the reality as it actually is. There's a better story than the one that you have heard. The gospel tells a true and better story. All right, so what is going on here? Well, you have heard of a guy named Zeus, probably, right? Can you picture him? The statue, what's he doing? Yeah, he's got a big lightning bolt up in his hand. Good job. Two of you paid attention in school. <clears throat> Zeus, uh, was, Zeus was the supreme god in the Greek world. Zeus was believed to have been the friend of strangers, the god of heaven and earth, the god of thunder, the commander of the universe, the principle of justice, and was worshipped as the protector of the home. Titus 2, 1 to 10, what are most of the things talked about there? Sometimes think about that and look. Zeus was like the head of the mafia for all the other Greek gods. This was the guy in charge. He was called the father of gods and men. Zeus was believed to avenge those who were wronged and to bless and serve those who did right. It was believed that everything good and bad that happens in the world comes as a result of what Zeus assigns to you, good or bad, which was totally wrapped up in whether you were good or bad. So if you're born in Crete, this would have been part of the dominant story that you grew up hearing. Zeus would look down on you. He would watch you. And if you did good, then whenever he wanted, he would appear to do good for you. And he would watch. And if you did bad, then whenever he wanted, Zeus would appear to do the same to you. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, guess where it was believed that Zeus was born? Crete. Guess where it was believed that Zeus grew up and became a god? Crete. And so, 
If you are from Crete, what you heard from infancy was that there is this whole world of Greek mythology. And yeah, you're under Rome, and Rome's in charge, and Rome is in power. And the Romans have gods too, but motherland, this belongs to Zeus. And Zeus was born here, and Zeus grew up here. And by the people of Crete giving Zeus good, benevolent things, then he ascended to being a god. And so from then on, whether you do good or bad, it's all wound up in Zeus appearing to give you the same. Now, you grew up hearing this. There's temples to Zeus. And then one day a guy named Paul shows up. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Zeus isn't real. There is no Zeus. Zeus is a figment of your imagination. But understand, there is a spiritual world. And what you do matters. Your behavior makes a difference. But God doesn't give you based on what you do. God gives you based on what He did. You see, the, things, the way things actually work is not a man becomes a God, but God becomes a man. And this man lived the perfect life in your place and died a sacrificial death in your place and rose again in victory. And he's the one who rules and reigns. He's the one who holds lightning bolts in his hand. So God appeared. God made himself known. What he's saying is Jesus is the anti-Zeus. Isn't that beautiful? Paul preached that despite all the bad that we've done and all the evil we in fact are, Jesus appeared. Not to dole out bad to you because you've been bad, but to take your badness upon himself, to receive in full the wrath of God so that by grace through faith you could have Christ. You could get God. And so if you believed this message, then you were saved and now you're part of God's people in the churches in Crete. Of course, one of the major challenges that we face today is that we have a story that we live in. Every time we turn the TV on, we hear it. Every time you pick up your phone and look at social media, you see it. Every time you turn the radio on, you hear it. Everywhere you look, is a story. And many parts of that story are a lie. They're telling you that life is based on the shape of your body or how much you succeed, how much you gain for yourself, whether you have a spouse or not, whether you have kids or not, what color your skin is, how high the ladder you can climb, 
It's all about how much you can get for yourself because you've got to make a name for yourself because you are your own God. That's the story of our culture. And so our great temptation is that having heard the gospel and having come to believe it and being rescued out of our sin, that we would in fact slip back in to believing that old story. That it would become co-mingled with our Christianity such that we just take and choose parts of what God says and neglect and reject other parts. This is the great temptation we face, is it not? And so when we come to disbelieve the gospel as Christians, then we start believing our old way of life. What does that look like? Well, God's wrong. My life is really about me. The gospel isn't true. I must earn the favor of God. I'm entitled to just this little bit of sinful pleasure because it's been such a hard week. If God really cared, he would have answered that prayer. This is the battle that we face every single day. Brothers and sisters, we will be tempted to to mix the biblical gospel, the true story, with the stuff of everyday life. We will be tempted to disbelieve and disobey the Savior who gave himself for us. Every time we sin, that's what we're doing. We're saying, my old way of life was better. God isn't that good. That's what sin is. It's believing I can treasure something else more than Jesus because it's better. Now this is what happened in the churches on the island of Crete. It's a short book. Take 20 minutes later today and just read through it. And what you'll find is that they were returning to their old lies and that they were getting confused by new ones. That in these churches, people had come in who were no longer teaching the biblical gospel. They were teaching some of it and then mixing it with other stuff. And the people of God were getting confused by lies and misteachings. False teachers were mixing the Crispin, the Christian, or the Crispin, the Christian gospel with some Greek mythology. And so Paul wrote the letter of Titus to straighten all this out. And what does he tell them? He tells them, you're hearing again. And some of you are believing again that Zeus appeared. And that the bad happening in your life is happening because you've been bad. And that if you really want good from God, then you've got to act good. And that the gospel isn't enough to really believe. You've got to work hard and follow a whole bunch of rules. And if you don't, then you cannot stay in the truth and the gospel of God. And so Zeus, he's going to appear again. 
But Paul says, no. No. Jesus appeared. That's why he uses that word. Jesus appeared, but not like Zeus. Not to dole out good if you're good and bad if you're bad. Jesus Christ appeared, not as a human who became God, but as the humble God who became man. Jesus Christ appeared. But notice it says he's going to appear again. Look at verse 13. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, we exist today between the two appearings of Jesus, between his, his first appearing as a baby who grew up and became the obedient Savior who died on the cross. And the second coming, the second appearing of Christ, when he will appear not next time as a humble baby, but as the ruling and reigning king of the universe who will come in judgment. And that right now, everyone who ever lives exists between the two appearings of Christ. And how are we to live between the first one and the last one? Well, we're to live in one sense with one eye to the first and the other eye to the second. Those of you with cross-eyed, you're, you're in a good place. We exist today to live in light of the first time Jesus came, but also to live in the reality that he will, in fact, come again. And so we live to, to please God because he will return, and because he's given us his great love. And we do so in his strength and for his glory. Church, the major, the major temptation we face between the first appearing and the second appearing is to turn our backs on the first and to pretend like he's not coming back in the second. That is our temptation. It's to think I can just live today about myself in my own appearing. In other words, to live in the worldview in which we were born. But that's not who we are. Therefore, that's not what we must do. You see, down towards the very heart of this passage is the truth that the appearing of Christ for all who have come to him has rescued you out of that old way of life and has given you a new identity. And so behavior, a changed life, flows not out of I want to get Zeus to appear and give me something good, but out of Jesus has appeared and given me himself. And he is infinitely good. And therefore, through him, I am a new person. And we are new people. And through him, we can live a new way of life. Do you see what I mean? This list of 15 things to do or not do is not a list to follow to earn a relationship with or favor of God. 
It's not a list of commands that if you follow them, God will somehow make it rain blessings and everything will go easy in your life. That's not how God works. God's sovereign. He's in control. Yes, there's reaping and sowing. In other words, there are consequences for the way we live our lives. If I don't follow the rules of the crosswalk, especially around here, there's a good chance I might need more than a boot on my foot. There's reaping and sowing. But the course of my life is not ultimately determined by what I do, but by a God who loves me and will do what's best for me. Period. Jesus Christ appeared. He appeared to make us a people of his own possession. And deeply embedded in this way of life is the gospel. And the gospel provides both the pattern and the power for living the Christian life. How do we know that? Well, look again at that verse 12. There's a little tiny word there. So easy to jump over and miss. It's the word training. Now, I know we've been doing hard work, but give me two or three more minutes and I'm done. This little word training is so good. Brothers and sisters, how do we live lives of obedience before God? Practically speaking, how does that happen? It happens by training. It happens not by trying really hard to muster up the desire for God. It happens not by trying really hard in my own strength to obey God. Bless you. It happens not through self-determination. Don't you see that's our old story? You've just transposed that story onto good spiritual things, but you're doing it with your own selfish, sinful, self-driven pride, and that won't work. You do it through a new story, the reality of the gospel. You see, the gospel sets for us a different pattern of life. The gospel has rescued us and placed us into a better story. And that story isn't, I obey, therefore I get Jesus. It's Jesus obeyed and gave me himself. And so the way up is not the way of Zeus. It's not this way. The way up is the way down. The kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. I don't get for myself through making life about me. I get joy and peace in Christ through giving away my life. The gospel is the pattern, and it's also the power. That's what that one little word tells me is the gospel's training us ongoing every day, brothers and sisters, to live in the power already given to us. The gospel trains us to live this new life. And that's good news. Now what in the world does this have to do with church? Everything. Everything. You see, 
We live in a society not built around Zeus, but full of stories telling us things that aren't true. And every moment of every day, these stories are vying for first place in our hearts. And it's very possible for a Christian to have moments, even months and years, in which you slip back into living in that old story. And what's God's solution? It's God's Word doing His work through His people. You and I will remain, in many ways, faithful, enduring, persevering, obedient, joyful in our Christian lives. Not through it's just me and Jesus, but through it's us and Jesus. This is God's design, that we grow up in Him together, that together we learn to do the good works that God has for us. Now, in case you think I just made all that up, here's Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The structure of the church, humble pastors, godly servants, deacons, members committed, serious about Christ and about each other. This is God's prescription that through these structures and His Word, we would grow up in Him. And so I would say unapologetically to any believer in the room, if you've not yet committed to a church, you are living outside the will of God. God's will is that through the structure of a church family, you would grow up in Christ. Yesterday I read this quote from a guy named Thebiti, Anawanabile. He said, Saying you belong to the church without belonging to a church is like saying you're married without having a wife. I couldn't say it any better myself. I encourage you to prayerfully consider how you can apply God's word to your heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us a true and better story a story that will last not a few moments in time, but for all eternity, the story of the gospel. We pray, God, that you would help us to grow up in our belief, to help each other to mature in Christ, that we would reject lies and embrace truth. I pray, Father, for the person who's here today just considering the claims of Christ, not yet a believer, all the way to those who have grown up the last several decades walking with you, that you'd help us all 
by your grace to take the next step of faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.